Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. This week on our first episode of 2022, reporter Humberto Sanchez sits down with me to talk about the life and legacy of former Senator Harry Reid, who passed away at the end of December after battling pancreatic cancer for several years. He was 82. Then, our own Michelle Rendells and Luz Gray interview two members of the polling firm Equis Research to talk about why more Latinos supported Donald Trump in 2020 compared with 2016. At the end of the show, Megan Messerly says goodbye to the team and reflects on her time as a reporter covering healthcare, elections, and more. I am here with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, to talk about, normally we're talking about uh, kind of the news going on in D.C., but today we're talking about something a little bit different, a passage of Senator Harry Reid. He passed away on December 28th of 2021. He was 82 years old. He was a major, major player in the Democratic Party and in Congress as a whole. So we're going to talk about that. Like I said, he passed away at the end of December at the age of 82 um, from pancreatic cancer. He'd been fighting it for a very long time. To start off, I just wanted to know what was the reaction in D.C. when, when, when the news of his death came out? It was very somber. Like there were very there were hundreds of tributes from lawmakers sitting and and retired. Of note, like Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who served with Reed for, for very many years and was his adversary and political rival during when Reed was majority leader and minority leader, put out a very touching statement saying how their their fights never got personal. And even after the fact, they he said they've grown to become friends and that they've talked since Reed left the Senate in 2017 and that he was very fond of their friendship and, and wished him well. He was very sad that he passed away. And that was not surprising surprising, but that was endearing because they they fought so bitterly while they were both in power. And it was, that was an interesting one. Another one, the Republicans, there were a lot of Republicans that, that reached out to Harry Reid. John Boehner, former Speaker John Boehner, also in that same tumult with, with McConnell and with President Obama, there was a government shutdown and they were meeting at the White House one day during the shutdown and Boehner charged into this office where Harry Reid was sitting and he told him to go F himself. And that was a very funny and eventful thing that happened. And Boehner has since, I think they both worked uh, on marijuana uh, legalization uh, at, since Boehner has left and they've become friends. And he, he talked about him glowingly in his book. And he talked about that story as well. And he also bid him a, a fond farewell. He made a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle, which you wouldn't think of him because he was such a pugnacious political figure and also divisive. Like he also made peace with, with Mitt Romney, who he who accused of having not paid his taxes in full <laughs> during the election when he was running against President Obama. And they, they Romney also issued a statement that was very kind. So, so uh, Reed was just a, a fascinating character and maybe a one-off, you, you, a guy who so encapsulated the times and his work in the Senate and made friends and enemies wherever he went. But upon his passing, people really came out and, and talked about their friendships with him, people who you might not expect. Yeah. I even saw statements from Dean Heller. So he's got this big legacy behind him now. And, and like you said, a lot of people came out to, to talk about that. But I want to talk about some of those things that he did while he was in while he was in Congress. He was the majority leader and the minority leader for a while. And I think there's a lot of criticism that he has also garnered over the years for certain things that he did, kind of in his unwillingness to budge on certain issues. But what is that legacy? What are the, what are the things that are going to be felt the most from Harry Reid, um, you know, now that he's gone? I always got to look to Yucca Mountain. That, that, that basically, I think, and kind of encapsulates Reid's career as a politician, 
Yucca Mountain in the 80s was deemed the place that the, the nation would dump and, and store its nuclear waste. At the time, the delegation was very, it had no seniority and they basically got railroaded into having this law passed because nobody else wanted to take the waste. And over a period of years and decades, Reed managed to, to stop any waste from being shipped to Nevada, which was kind of crazy because he was an upstart. He was an underdog in this fight. And eventually, and becoming the minority leader and majority leader and, and whip before that, he moved up the ranks. He kept his eye on the ball. The man held a grudge like you wouldn't believe. And uh, Yucca Mountain was something the, the delegation to this day uh, still looks to his example about how he fought it. He starved it from funding. He did everything he could to stop it. And I think that uh, is a real good encapsulation of Reed's career. But then also, you know, he, what he did with public lands, he, he got Nevada's first and only national park created in the 80s and I believe in 86. So, uh, and he did that through compromise. He had to win over Republican votes to do that and, and was able to do so. So not only was he a, a fierce defender of the state, but he also was able to work across the aisle to benefit the state as well. Yeah. And I, I know Obama put out a statement and said Harry Reid encouraged him to run for president. He, he was a, a respected figure among a lot of politicians. And I think he had his hand in a lot of pots, even when he wasn't in Congress anymore. He was still influential. That's right. We, I mean, we look to the Democratic Reed machine that he built up in the state that managed to turn a lot of the state. People say it's purplish, but it, it, that's the case because of the infrastructure that Reed put in place. And Reed playing kingmaker with, with Obama, he's seeing his potential there and, and tapping him on the shoulder, saying it's your time. That was a momentous moment in American history, for that matter. And he, he will be remembered as a historical figure, that and many other things he did. Yeah. You talked about him kind of working his way up from whip to minority leader to majority leader. Coming from Nevada, a small state in terms of population, I, I think Nevada punches really above its weight in D.C. And I think a lot of that has to do with Harry Reid. How, how is Nevada perceived because of Reid and how, how would it not have been if he wasn't in, wasn't there? Nevada stature, Reid had put Nevada on his shoulders and it rose when, when Reid rose. And he knew that. And I think that was one of the reasons why he decided to, to become part of leadership and, and then eventually a leader to help his state. And I think without such a charismatic senator that the state would not be where it is now. Obviously, every state has two senators and they're all equal, but some are more equal than others in certain cases. And Harry Reid managed to use his influence as leader with other senators to get things done. And it'll be a while before we can look back on somebody else's career and, and see the accomplishments that equal or surpass Senator Reid. Yeah, well, that's something I wanted to talk about, too, is we've seen a lot of these major political players, these big congressmen passing away recently. We have Reed, but then there, there's been a lot of other people as well. That's right. Bob Dole recently passed away and th there was a big ceremony uh, in the Capitol Rotunda, which Reed will also be afforded that honor. It, it actually requires the House and Senate to pass resolutions to get this done. So everybody, everybody has to essentially agree. And Senator Reed will lay in state in the Capitol Rotunda on next Wednesday, I believe, the 12th of January. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's an honor. There's only been 30-ish so people who have, have received the honor, Dole being the, the last recipient. And part of that, it's a, it's a very solemn ceremony. It involves all members of, of the, each branch of the military to pay tribute. There's a whole ceremony of them going into the into the building, and that will all be on TV. And one of the great things about it also is that Lincoln was also late in state. Obviously, a former president would, would do that. But the plinth or the stand that he's that he they'll put his casket on will be the one that held Lincoln's casket. It's called a catafalque. 
And wow. Lincoln's catafalque is used for everyone who has since had the honor of laying in state. So it's a pretty heavy occasion. And it's going to be, uh, I'm sure a lot of lawmakers will show up, COVID notwithstanding, to pay a tribute, just like they did with Bob Dole. And, and when they're laying in state, how long are they there for? Usually about a day. Okay. Depending on the on the person. I think that some people are, are, have been longer than a day in order to get viewing and all that stuff like that. But there won't be any viewing with this, I think, uh, because mm-hmm. of COVID. Yeah. Well, we could talk about Harry Reid for hours and hours, but we, we've talked about some of the major things. Is there anything else you want to touch on on Reid? Any stories that you have personally with him before we wrap up? Gosh, there's so many. People don't talk enough about his bad phone manners. I've, there's so many stories of him just hanging up on people. Like Chuck Schumer tells a funny story about him not knowing if Reid was still on the phone. He was just such a character. And, and he had this fantastic portrait of, of Mark Twain over his desk in his office. It was just a really, really neat. He was just a fantastic guy to cover. You couldn't ask for someone more, more interesting, more persnickety, more, more indignant, more persuasive, more press averse. He was never afraid to, to say something wrong. I mean, that's kind of his, his, his playbook to just go with what your gut says. And he was just a great guy to cover. All right, Humberto. Well, thank you so much for talking with me about former Senator Harry Reid. There will be a funeral in Nevada, and then he will be laying in state next week on the 12th, like you said. So we'll we'll be covering that as, as those things happen. But I appreciate it, Humberto. Thank you. Anytime, man. Assistant editor Michelle Rendells and Spanish editor Luz Gray sat down with Carlos Odio and Stephanie Valencia with Equis Research, a polling firm that focuses on understanding the Latino voters, to talk about how even though President Joe Biden won the majority of votes from Latinos in 2020, many voters shifted towards Donald Trump after voting against him in 2016. They discussed how immigration was not as big of an issue for Latino voters in 2020, how economics overshadowed disparaging remarks from the former president, and what lessons Democrats and Republicans should take away from the last election. Stephanie, can you tell me a little bit about why Equis decided to pursue this pretty advanced postmortem? Yeah, well, we've spent the first part of the year really looking at the question of who moved toward Trump in the 2020 election. It takes a long time for electoral data to get updated in multiple states across the country. And everybody wants to take and make their hot takes immediately after an election, the night of using bad exit polls, and then the weeks and months following when there isn't really like total and complete data. So we made a first pass in chapter one of our postmortem back in April that really looked at who moved. And this is really focused on why they moved and what to do next. And ultimately, we were able to tap into multiple other additional data sets, including depth of research that we have done over the last year, poll, multiple polls and focus groups and tapped into a number of other uh, data sets to ensure that we could provide this dimensional understanding or further dimensional understanding of why Latino voters move toward Trump and what people should do about it. Yeah. What are the implications you guys see for this coming cycle? I'd say that there are lessons sort of more broadly, not just for Democrats, but for all sides in terms of the the value of hard work for Latino voters and who is owning debates over hard work and the way that Latinos see it and the ways in which it is framed. It's long been a feature of campaigning to Hispanic voters to talk about the American dream. The way Republicans and Democrats talk about it can be very different. I think part of what it, the 2020 election shows, the danger where in spots among some voters, one party or one candidate is entirely owning that debate. 
What does the drop in the priority on immigration mean for Democrats, especially as they are now having trouble getting any immigration reform passed? So first of all, obviously, like COVID and the economy end up swamping a lot of priorities, right? Regardless of what people are doing. Part of what we have shown in the past, though, is that that is made possible in part because there isn't as much differentiation between the parties. If you look at it, really, there's a period starting with the late 2005-2006 immigration fights where the ways in which those fights were had basically cast the perception of the parties among some Latino voters for like the next decade. In, in 2020, we're talking about a much murkier picture, which again was shaped by how the campaigns in the media were talking about these things and what they were saying and weren't saying. I think the question now for Democrats is, can they regain that advantage on differentiating between the parties? Because when you go to 2010 and Harry Reid um, and his leadership on something like the DREAM Act, where at that point, simply kind of leading on an issue like that probably was enough I think we've now entered 11 years later, and I think more voters are asking who's going to deliver on these issues. Add to that really quickly that Democrats in a lot of ways have a huge opportunity here <laughs> to say they've got to make up some lost ground and redefine themselves as it relates to work and workers and the American dream, which I believe there's a huge opportunity to do that with the infrastructure deal and with Build Back Better and the kind of economic components of Build Back Better. And there is also a huge opportunity for them to deliver on immigration. As Carlos points out, that became, and as you all know, being on the ground in Nevada, became a hugely mobilizing and defining issue in Harry Reid's reelection in 2010. You can see Senator Cortez Masto obviously leaning in on the issue in a big way again, because it's a hugely differentiating issue for her, given you know her reelection as well. And so I really do think that the BIF and the BBB and immigration kind of combined can really be a one-two punch for Democrats to show that they both care about Latino voters, but that they also can deliver for them uh, as well. And should this immigration reform not go through? I mean, do you see some pretty bad <laughs> signals? I think the challenges in the minds of Latino voters, the waters are very muddled around who's for or against them on immigration when Trump is not separating children and their families, because there's both sidesism that both sides suck. Neither side is delivering for us. And so it can become a huge risk and a huge challenge for Democrats to be able to define themselves and have a clear cut conversation with Latino voters with that still being unresolved. And if they can resolve that and they can make progress on it, which I think for all intents and purposes, any kind of immigration reform or any kind of legalization package that happens or could happen or is being considered in the Senate right now would be bigger than anything that's been done in the last at least 20 to maybe even 50 years. So it is a huge opportunity for, again, Democrats to, to make that progress. And absent that, I think they will have a lot harder of a case to make. One of the interesting observations you guys had is this Democrats take Latinos for granted message. What's behind that? Latino support for Democrats has been high for a while now, right? I think especially during periods of uncertainty, I think that just naturally opens up an opportunity for the other party to jump in and say, you are being taken for granted. These margins have been very high. As we kind of show, the support among Latinos is higher than you might even expect, just like underlying demographics and values. And so what happened in 2020 is that you had voters who feel a little bit more on the margins, right? They're not a typical voter. And so might feel neglected sort of overall, especially might not have felt like they were getting communication from Democrats. I think that's in part also aggravated because Trump was the incumbent and Trump had, for example, been going on the trail for four years. 
Whereas Joe Biden only really hits the trail when the primary is over and then COVID happens and he never really hits the trail. And so you had Trump campaigning aggressively for four years in a way that there was a real presence. And so when you don't have the democratic presence in the same way, and when you don't have the door knocking you might've had in a different moment, it just, again, opens up that kind of, that kind of attack for the other side. We saw in your report that part of the story appears to be that the barrier keeping some Latinos from voting for Trump went down during COVID with a change in focus from his anti-Latino or anti-immigrant positions to other concerns, including the economy. So why did more Latinos swing toward Trump? As you said before, you can't understand why some might move toward Trump without first asking what held them back in 2016. And what we show here is the extent to which opposition to his hardline immigration policies. And also a really important variable, the importance that a person placed on their Hispanic identity, people who, are, who place great importance on their own personal Hispanic identity, were holding back more in 2016. What happens in 2020 is a series, and, and start, by the way, starts in the midterm and then accelerates into 2020, is that the priorities shift. And in shifting priorities, it creates permission for someone who might actually look more like a Republican in some ways, uh, might share some values of Republicans, but has been reluctant in the past to essentially find a way to get permission to vote for Donald Trump. And so when you are talking about the economy and when the economy becomes much more important and when Trump's highest marks were on the economy even before COVID, and we're also, by the way, Hispanics were doing very well economically at that point, not necessarily because of actions taken in the first four years of his administration. There are trends that preceded that administration. That gives those voters a way to say, as we quote in the report, I don't like him. I don't like how he treats my people. I don't agree with him on a lot of things but he's going to do better on the economy. And that is the biggest priority for my family right now. You guys did a close look at sort of what happened in Florida, what happened in South Texas. Did anything strike you as unusual or tracking differently in the way Nevada voters um, showed up in this postmortem? You know, I think Nevada saw to more of an extent than other states, this non-voter dynamic where it was less about Clinton or third party voters switching over to Trump and more about people who sat out 2016 voting for Trump. And that was like an interesting Nevada dynamic. I think in Nevada, this debate between economics and public health was like especially acute, right? Um, it's not that people didn't care about public health. It wasn't let them die. It was let me work. And really a, a desire to see the economy, especially as it started reopening, stay open and continue to open and not see any movement in the opposite direction, which was a fear that they had in this moment, which again, I think was particularly true in, in Vegas and Clark County. You guys had some interesting insights into the word socialism and the different meanings it has to people and and the different resonance it has. Can you kind of articulate what stood out to you about how people are perceiving that move towards socialism? Well, you see, you see two big things. One is the extent to which it really does seem shaped by media, the media that people consume. And so there's like different varietals of the socialism concern, depending on whether you're getting your news from Fox News or you're getting it from WhatsApp. And what the socialism attack does is ring various bells. There's not like one concern for every individual voter. It's like a package attack. What the right wing narrative does is say that the opposite of Uh, socialism is not capitalism. This is the opposite of socialism is the American dream. That's the debate they want to have. That's the way that they're setting it up. And that allows them to bring in a lot of different pieces where there is a through line 
on the socialism concern. So like, it's not the number one concern for everybody, but the second concern, this this through line of the common concern among the voters who say they are concerned is a worry that people become lazy and dependent on government. So you have people who say they value hard work a lot saying there will be government policies that undermine hard work, that reward people who don't want to work hard the way that me and my family do. We are not talking about all Latino voters. We are talking about a, sm- a relatively small, small subset. Majorities of Latino voters still voted for Joe Biden. Majorities of Latino voters reject these arguments. You are still seeing healthy concern about this idea of Democrats embracing socialism. That's around 40 percent, four in 10 Latino voters, which is, by the way, roughly, while it doesn't totally correlate, it, it's roughly around what Trump gets nationally is around 40 percent or, or close to it. I don't know if there was any closing thoughts that you want to leave readers and listeners with. Some of the pieces that we don't yet have answers for, I think might end up being the most important for future elections. What about the 50% of eligible Latinos nationally who didn't vote, which is the rate of abstention abstention higher um, than what you see across other racial or ethnic groups? I think that's one lesson that we talked about earlier in our postmortem. The churn between elections shapes so much of the vote choice. We just assume it's 10 voters this election, 10 voters that election, a few of them change their minds. When in reality, you're talking about a third or more of Latino voters who wouldn't have voted in the previous election. That was Carlos Odio and Stephanie Valencia with Equis Research. If you want to read Michelle and Luce's full story, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. And now we have a portion of a live discussion we had through Twitter Spaces with former reporter Megan Messerly. Megan was with us since the Indy started in 2017. She left the team just before the holidays to cover health care and health policy at a national level in Washington, D.C. with Politico. Elections and health care were, were the, kind of the two big things you reported on while you were with us. What made you want to do those? What made you decide that those were the things that you wanted to report on? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, coming coming into this, again, at the beginning, it was it was Riley, Michelle, and, and me, and we were covering the legislature, and, and all three of us had just previously been covering the 2016 presidential election. So we obviously had that experience covering election and covering politics. And so I think, again, in those early days, right, we all we all just covered a little bit of everything from day one. And so obviously part of that was was politics. And I've always sort of enjoyed, I always say for me, my space to report in is the intersection of politics, policy, and people. And so for me, obviously, politics is an important part of that. And I know a lot of folks reading about politics, especially in D.C., sort of your eyes can can glaze over with sort of all the back and forth. But ultimately, understanding those political dynamics, right, is really important to understanding how policy is crafted and created and then ultimately the impact that that has on on people's lives. And so I think that's for me why I sort of have that that interest in in politics. And, you know, you think about politics too, politicians are people and they all have their own personalities. And so I think it's so interesting to get a sense of sort of what's what's driving people, right? Why are they, why are they making the decisions they're making? And then with healthcare, it sort of goes back to that first legislative session. And we were kind of looking at all the different policy beats we'd have to cover. And, and saying, okay, well, we got we got to divide this up somehow, you know. So Michelle took on criminal justice and immigration, and and Riley took on energy. And so I was like, well, okay, well, I'll do I'll do healthcare. And for me, I, I've always had that interest in in science and, and healthcare. In fact, when I was in high school, I thought I was thought I was going to become a microbiologist. I spent a summer working in a lab researching this parasite called 
Toxoplasma gondii, which causes the disease toxoplasmosis caused by cats. Anyways, long story short, I've always loved science, uh, thought I was going to be a scientist, realized that I couldn't spend all day trapped inside uh, a lab, uh, not seeing people. I found the work we were doing so interesting, but I realized I think I wanted to, to read about it. I didn't want to be doing it myself. And so I think I've always had sort of passion with science and, and healthcare. So that was sort of a, a natural fit when it came to picking policy beats. And then I've just, I've enjoyed it more and more since I started covering. What will you miss most about Nevada? I sort of feel more like a Nevadan than I do a Californian. I'm so grateful to, to the state. And I think one of the amazing qualities about this state, right, is just the opportunity it presents, right? Like you can come here and have whatever sort of background and this state will take you in and you can sort of make make a life for yourself doing whatever it is that you want to be doing. And I think a lot of people who have moved to this state from elsewhere, I know they they feel that way. And so I feel very you know, incredibly fortunate that this state has afforded me the opportunities that it has and that the Indy has afforded me the opportunities that it has. So I think I'll miss that. I, I, I always I love this sort of scrappy, rugged desert Western state. I think it'll be obviously a big change going to to DC. I'm not looking forward to the humidity. The, the dry heat is really quite a blessing. So I, I'll, I'll miss that as well. But I think I'll just miss the amazing people that I've met here, whether it's coworkers at the Indy or one of my favorite things is whatever it is that I'm at, right? Whether it's some sort of campaign rally or we're talking to people, people outside the polls or I'm asking people to share their stories about what their experiences have been like with COVID over the last couple of years. I've just really enjoyed getting to hear the stories of, of so many people and, and I feel very fortunate that all those people have opened up with me and shared those stories. And so I think I'll probably miss miss the people most of all. I, I was also curious, and I don't know, you, we've already touched on it a little bit, but can you t can you explain a little bit more on what your job is going to be at Politico? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I've mentioned a little bit of this on, on Twitter, but I'm, I'm joining the healthcare team as a national healthcare reporter. So I'll be covering health policy in all 50 states and with the goal of sort of threading together health policy developments that are happening at the state level and tying that into what's happening at the at the national level. So similar to what I do for, for the Indy, but with, with healthcare developments, but just now on a, on a broader scale. Now that you're transitioning to an indie reader instead of an indie reporter, what do you want to see uh, covered and what do you want to see? What do you want to see come out of the indie? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot and I sort of started off this call talking a little bit about that, but I'm just, you know, so proud to see how the indie has grown from our tiny little scrappy newsroom around the table and in Carson City into what it is today. And so many of these, you know, fantastic interns we've had, seeing them become young reporters and find their find their little areas of expertise. I think that's been, you know, really nice to see. So I just hope that the indie continues to grow and thrive as I as I know it will. I don't think that there's anything terribly different from what we're we're already doing uh, that I want the indie to do. Both John and Elizabeth know I'm I'm pretty vocal. And so if there was something I thought the indie should be doing, I probably would have already told them. But I think I'm just really excited to see where the indie goes from here. I mean, I think it has an incredibly bright future. And just with having more people on staff, that just means there's more we can do more policy areas, we can explore more things we can cover. And the, and the more news, the better, the more people we have looking into policy issues, looking into politics, holding elected officials to account, the better. And so I'm just really excited to see where the indie continues to go from here. And I will, as I've said, I will continue to be the indie's number one fan, I will continue to love the indie forever. So all right, Megan. Well, with that, is there any parting words you want to give before we wrap up the Twitter spaces here? 
I just want to say um, a big thank you to my editors, John and Elizabeth, to all my fantastic co-workers. I'm so grateful to have had the chance to work with all of you. And I wanted to say thank you to all of our readers as well for following along, especially those of you who follow on Twitter. Some of you have sent kind notes from time to time, and that's been really nice on days where I'm getting a, a lot of hate. And so I just wanted to say thank you for all of that. I mean, I hope all of you will continue to read and, and support the indie because I, I just know that that everything the indie has, has to bring in the future is going to be fantastic. All right. Well, with that, Megan, thank you so much for everything you've done. I look forward to reading all of your wonderful reporting at Politico. I will miss you very much. And remember, keep Nevada in your heart. We'll miss you. Always. Thanks so much, Joey. Yep. Thank you, Megan. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Humberto Sanchez, Carlos Odio, Stephanie Valencia, Michelle Rendells, Luce Gray, and of course, a huge thank you to Megan Messerly for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, uses for portable CD players when you no longer own any CDs, or whatever else is on your mind, at joey at theenvyindie.com or jacob at theenvyindie.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>